take our Bibles, turn, get ready for this, to Genesis chapter 1, all right? Think you can find this one? All right, Genesis 1, though we'll refer to much more than this, uh, we will read the first two verses and then we'll jump to the end of the chapter and uh, read then the beginning of chapter 2. Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 31, then God saw everything that He had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day, thus the heavens and the earth and All the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended His work which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it He rested from all His work which God had created and made. While Valentine's Day certainly gets the main stage in regard to important dates in the month of February, there are some people who regularly, every year, and have been doing this for many years, celebrate February the 12th. Anybody know the significance of February the 12th and why that date has evolved to be such a big deal? It's Darwin's birthday. And so every year, people celebrate what they call Darwin Day. And they do a variety of activities, I assume, then that think about Darwin, origin of species, and then the evolutionary theory as we have it and know it. And there's no doubt that when it comes to the issue of evolution, you're going to find some real challenges if you are sharing the gospel with those who would espouse the traditional evolutionary view of how things came to be. Undoubtedly, at some point along the way, if you are sharing the gospel, this is going to be an issue. There there are an ever-growing number of people who believe that we are the result of what would be random mutation, chance, natural selection. The the idea being that at some point our beginning goes back to a single cell organism that developed and became more complex over time, uh, developing, adapting, evolving to then what we have Now, this for sure is the accepted idea in the vast majority of the educational world, not just in our culture, but I would argue across the globe. Now, it is interesting, though, among the American population, hardcore evolutionists are really concerned Gallup did a poll about two years ago in which they discovered that about a about a third of Americans, a third of Americans, 
believe in what I would call hardcore evolution. And by that I mean just this purely materialistic view, meaning there was no divine intervention at any point whatsoever. That there are a third of Americans who believe just that most basic and fundamental kind of evolutionary thought. We are the result of, of this, this progress over time, millions, millions, really it would require billions upon billions of years, and that's, that's where we are now. So a third of Americans buy into this. Another third of Americans believe that at some point in the process, and there could be a variety of, among this group, but they believe that somewhere along the process God was involved. That in fact evolution, they, they try and marry uh, the, the biblical creation and evolution, these, guys, these folks are called theistic evolutionists, if they know that or not, I don't know, but that is how we'd label them. They believe these things are compatible. And they would argue, yes, we, they're, the ev- evolutionary process is the process that resulted in humanity being what we are and where we are today and, and even everything else on the planet, except this was of divine origin. God did this. And really, the, the, the reason why they believe that, the reason why there are some who want to hold that, is because they're trying to figure out a way to deal with what is a fundamental problem among evolution itself, and that is they have no explanation for the actual beginning. Meaning they can't tell me why there is something why, rather than nothing. Evolution doesn't have an explanation for that. Why is there something rather than nothing? Their argument having to be well, material stuff is, is eternal. There's always been energy, or there's always been stuff out there. Some even believe that evolution was the result of the seeding of the atmosphere, the, the environment by aliens. I'm not kidding, by the way. Vowed atheist Richard Dawkins has even floated that idea as a possibility. They don't have an answer, though, to that initial beginning. And so some say, well, God did it. God did the initial beginning and created this process, and we have evolution as we have it now. So then as we stand, we have about a third of Americans believe the creation account. And there may be variety among that group as well, but by and large, the way they would recognize it is that what we have in the record of Scripture is, in fact, what what has happened. That's where we all came from. Scripture does accurately record origins for us. Now, here's something that I have found interesting. On the one hand, evolutionists are really disturbed that only a third of Americans believe wholeheartedly in the theory of evolution. Quite frankly, I'm rather disturbed that only a third of Americans believe in creation. <laughs> That number's gone up. I'm sure everybody here remembers this if you were here, but I'm right on the cusp of having been here 10 years this month, all right? 10 years, 2009, February 2009, 10 years. And, and 2009, Sunday nights, I taught through the book of Genesis. We did chapters 1 and 2, and then we talked about evolution. I went back and looked, and the statistics back then were much better. It was nearly a majority of Americans believed in creation. Ten years later, that number's now down to about 33%. So, this is an ever-growing issue, and so what you can expect then 
If you're out engaged with people with the gospel, you can expect if you come across three people, two of them may have issues with evolution, right? That's roughly the way the statistics may would unfold. What do you do? What do you do if somebody challenges you with this issue? What if you are sharing the gospel with them and, and what they want to talk about then is, well, okay, so yeah, you're, t- you're saying there's this God, God created us, uh, because that's a big part of the gospel, right? God created everything that we see. All of the, uh, the methods of evangelism I shared start here and then take us to the fall. So God created everything good and perfect, but Man sinned and fell, and everything's now broken. And I could see at that point, somebody saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Let's go back to that thing. God created what? God created who? God created how? Wasn't it it a billion years? Wasn't it slowly over time? How does all of this work? Now, this, this can be an intimidating kind of question. It's similar to the issue of dealing with atheists. Because when we talk about evolution, we're not talking about just one issue. We're not talking about a side note. To deal with the issue of evolution is to deal with a world view. So this is a big deal. Those who hold to an evolutionary worldview hold to just that. They have a perspective on the world, where it came from, how it operates... We're not just talking about somebody who studies just biology or physics or chemistry. We are talking about an entire perspective on life itself. So to talk about the issue of evolution is a big deal. We want to make sure that we get this right. So we're going to take some time, and it might take us a little more time, because I want to make sure we have all the information that we need to feel like we understand what the Bible says about this. And then to kind of wander into the difficult waters of evolution itself. Now, for some of you though, let me go and give you the simplest way to deal with this. You you all ready? Simplest way to deal with this. Same way you deal with anybody who asks you questions about the gospel. You're not responsible to answer. I don't mean you shouldn't be ready to give a reason for the hope you have in Christ. You absolutely should be ready to give a reason for the hope you have in Christ. What I mean by this, if folks are challenging these things, atheism, uh, why is there evil and suffering in the world, what about good people, where do they go, what about other religions, is Jesus the only way, what about evolution, if these things are being challenged, your responsibility as the evangelist is to push through with the gospel. That's it, all right? Primary purpose is to push through with the gospel. Your responsibility, my responsibility, is that we bring to bear on the life of the hearer the message that Christ died, He rose from the dead, you are dead in your trespasses and sins if you do not place your faith in Him and Him alone. Regardless of what you think about evolution, (laughs) regardless of these things. And it's not that you can't have a conversation, but again, I would say... The obligation is not to answer to their satisfaction every question they ask you. We've noted all along the way. They never will. Unbelievers need God by His Spirit to do a work of grace in their heart. Again, it's not to say you can't have these conversations. There's any number of ways. God might, help, might use you to help that process along. 
And so, you know, with that said, we will dive in to evolution and what the Bible says and then, you know, trying to prepare ourselves to have this kind of a conversation. Our process is going to be what it has been. We're going to, we're going to ask, what does the Bible say about this thing? And we're going to take our time and, and look at the biblical witness to the beginning, to creation, because that's what we're talking about, right? And then we're going to take some time and we are going to talk about then deficiencies in evolution. Now, let me go ahead at the outset of this thing and make plain where my field of expertise lies. And it's not in the sciences, all right? It's not. However, evolution is not a pure science. There is a philosophical set of assumptions underlying it. Now, if you talk to somebody and you pull that kind of stuff on them, boy, they are going to, I mean, that really, their eyeballs could burst out of their head, all right? I mean, to say that kind of thing, it's, it's, it may, might, be, might incite, uh, but I say that to say this, the reason why I would argue evolution is not a pure science, because it is neither observable nor repeatable, all right? And I, I had science in middle school, so I know that that is at least part of it, right? That is at least part of it. Science has to be, I think, right? My kids are being homeschooled, I think my wife teaches that. Okay, so, observable, repeatable, which evolutionists, and I'll show you some of the quotes from the leading evolutionist in the, in the world who recognize this very fact. This is indeed the case. We cannot get back to the beginning. We cannot. All their efforts to try and even replicate it have failed miserably, and even their efforts to replicate have required human manipulation to do it. In other words, they've, even those have been bad forms of testing. So, though, though I am not a scientist, and that is not my field, and we will talk about some of this, I, I do think because they're talking about beginnings, they're moving beyond pure science, and they are talking philosophy. And so now you're cozying up more to my world, all right? That's more where I feel like I, could, uh, I can speak to it. So that's going to be our process, talking about what does the Bible say about these things and then looking at the deficiencies of evolution itself. And please don't hesitate along the way to send me questions uh, if you have them. Uh, those of you who are, who are in that scientific world, who have understanding, I, I never want to say anything that then just, you know, uh, unfounded, you know, what I've had to do and come up with has been because of research, uh, stuff I've read over the years. So, please feel free to say, well, you know, what you said at this point about evolution, uh, that's really old and no one really thinks that anymore. You know, whatever the case may be. So, please feel free to do that. I want to make sure we have most accurate information we can. All right, so taking a look at this, asking ourselves, how can we prepare ourselves to have this kind of conversation? I think first, we need to understand what the Bible says. Number one, the Bible testifies that God and God alone is responsible for creation. Now, we'll flesh this out, and this, we certainly won't, it won't finish it tonight. All right, we'll do a little bit tonight. And then we'll pick it back up next, sun, next Sunday night. But let's, let's, let me make this explicit. 
there is no viable means by which we can marry the biblical account of creation and evolution and come up with something acceptable. These are incompatible. Which, which by the way, Richard Lewontin, who is one of the leading evolutionists in the country, has said just that, all right? He has said just that. So I'll call on somebody who would disagree with me wholeheartedly about a lot of things as somebody who would agree with me on this. The biblical account, we, we, we can't allow, in fact, I think his quote was, we cannot allow a supernatural foot in the door. So these things are not compatible. They, they are mutually exclusive ideas. The Bible's testimony, to me, is crystal clear. God and God alone is given credit for all that is in creation, every, every bit of it. So we're going to look at why that is the case. What, how is it that the Bible affirms this? Uh, you know, why, why do we, would we believe that God and God alone is responsible? Well, number one, letter A, the account of creation. So Genesis chapter 1. I don't know any other way to take Genesis chapter 1. And Genesis 1 is going to lay out some features of the work of creation. First, that it is a sovereign work. Notice again how it begins. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, well, I'm going to go ahead and say there's, there, there could be a lot of different questions that come up in Genesis 1 and 2. Like, what exactly is he talking about? How exactly did God form this? What was the nature of this earliest, you know, moment of creation? That is, that is far beyond our purposes. Those are fine conversations to have, just not my purpose and what we're doing here. What I want to show you is that first phrase, in the beginning, God... So, in other words, when did this happen? Before there was anything else. So let's make that explicit. The, the biblical testimony, and this is repeated on more than one occasion, the biblical testimony is just this. There was a time when nothing existed except the triune God. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, just accept that, all right? Don't try and conceive of what that was like. What do you mean? God always, God always existed in eternity past. What? Right, all right? But I will say this. No matter what side you fall on, you have to argue for the eternal existence of something. The evolutionist who claims that we are the result of certain forms of matter slamming together with incredible amounts of energy, have to explain where the matter and the energy came from. And here's what they are left with. Either there's a divine being or matter itself is eternal. It's always been. These are your options. There was a time when there was nothing. Why is there something now rather than still nothing? So, so, before anything existed, there was the triune God. And so, in the, 
beginning, at the moment of this, this, God created. Notice it's very specific. God created the heavens and the earth. Then it even says that the earth was without form and void, God hovering over it. This perhaps like a lump of clay that receives greater definition. Not exactly sure, but God created the stuff of creation. Again, the language of this is ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing. Out of nothing God created all that there is. And notice how he's specifically, intentionally, personally involved in this. And then what does God begin to do? So God is a sovereign work, creates everything. Then number two, or the second bullet point, he then orders creation. So as a feature of his sovereignty, and so notice what does not happen here. What does not happen here is, and then God established a process, let his hands go, And everything just happened. That would have been a really helpful verse if evolution were true. That's not what's in here. Instead, what does God do? Who is given sole credit for creating all things as they are? It is God. So verse 3, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light. He separated day and night. Verse 6, Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above, and it was so. So God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 9, then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. So we have God making light. We have God separating the the heavens from the creation. Then we have God forming dry land and oceans. And then it says in verse 11, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. It goes on then to describe that process. So, so again, notice the specific ordering of things. God intentionally is making every single part, and He's not making it in a random order, right? It's not arbitrary. It's not like God decides, I'd like some light around here. Let's do some light. You know it'd be great? I think I'm feeling a little firmament separation coming on. Why don't we do that today? That'd be great. Let's separate this stuff. It's not a random set of actions on God's part. It's intentional. It's ordered. And we have, then we have the next part, verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. Let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. It goes on to say, God made two great lights. He made the stars. He set the sun to rule in the day and the moon to roll, rule over the night. Then verse 20, then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the, of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living thing that moves. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply. That's the fifth day. In verse 24, 
Then God said, let the earth bring forth a living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. So again, we'll we'll stop there for just a moment, all right? These first five days of creation, again, without asking the question of like the age, like how long is a day, I'm a young earth guy, I'm a 24-hour day guy, all right? Some people aren't, okay, all right? But that's me. And, uh, and I have good reason to believe that, theologically, I think, uh, in particular. I have good reason to believe that. What matters, though, again, is to see how God is intentionally manipulating, creating. Now, he's using, he's using just his word to do it, but God is bringing forth all of these things. The grand, the grand creator, sovereign creator, is calling them forth. And do you notice the language? Does it sound to you... Like God is using this slow, evolving, millions after millions of years process? In other words, and and you're going to have to get people to be honest with you if you take them to this text. In an honest reading of the text, what does it sound like? Bam, 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 right? Day after day after day after day. There's... It, it, gives, it gives no sense that this, this is some laborious, long, tedious transformation of, of, of simple, less complicated things into to more complicated, bigger things. There's nothing in the text that says that. So again, understand, at this point, what, I, what I'm saying is the way the, the Account of creation is given. It's given to us as a literal thing. Now, what about man? Well, verse 26. God then separates the creation of man out as being something of a different kind. Clearly, this does not allow for a belief in evolution. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So, are there any animals involved in this? No, there are not. There are not. God said He's going to be in our image. We are going to fashion Him over over our likeness. We're going to give Him dominion. And so verse 27 said, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. How many more times does God have to say the word create in one verse? To get the point across, right? Intentional, active work of God. To make us... What we are. Not a, again, not a long, tedious, over the course of time process. And how does he do it? Well, we know. We know he's going to take the dust of the ground, right? Genesis chapter 2 is going to give us more detail into that. Exactly how, how this takes place. God sees that everything is good. It's evening and morning, the sixth day. And then, this to me is the best part, chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. It was finished. So much so that God created a seventh day. He created a seventh day by creating what? Nothing else. <laughs> right? In other words, I'm going to put into the, into the rhythm of life itself the fact that I finished the project. <laughs> There's going to be a whole day every week. There's going to be a whole day 
that's going to be designed to demonstrate this. The rhythm of life has always been this. It's always been this. With the seventh day being this day of rest. And we could go into this, right? I could go in, I could tell you about study after study that shows you make somebody work 14 days, they're going to do a lot less than the guy who works six, is off one and works six more. The 14-day guy gets a lot less done. I mean, it's like 15% less efficient. It's unbelievable. So, this is a, it's significant. This is, how God, this is what God does. He forms it all, then He finishes. He rested. Notice what it says in verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day, sanctified it, because in it He rested from all His work which God had created and made. Again, I bring all of this up as, just as a way to demonstrate that, that, that God, has, God has created this sovereign work. He has done this ordered work. God Himself is the one responsible for it. His hand is on it. He's, he's, not, he, he's not just establishing the process and letting go. God is there at each day. This is how the text reads. By the way, I would point out this little tidbit. And this has been studied by a number of astrophysicists, even evolutionists, who will attest to the fact that Genesis 1 is in the right order. It's in the right order. Astrophysicists will say, Gerald Schroeder is one of them, uh, who's one that, that I, I have read as best I could who argues that the Genesis account accurately reflects the way things had to be created to work as they work now. Light, separation of the firmaments, the the, the manner in which then there's the creation of seed and then light for the seed and then water and light for the seed. The way way all of these things come together, then, then there's there's the, the birds and then the fish and then the land animals, then man being at the pinnacle of this creation because he benefits from all of it. In other words, everything in this is in the right order. Now, <clears throat> I know not everybody here is a historian, but was Genesis written before the origin of species written by Charles Darwin? Yeah, I mean, it's got a couple of years on it, right? In fact, even if somebody were to say, well, I don't believe Moses wrote Genesis, still, you're, you're still talking centuries upon centuries upon centuries before Darwin's origin of species. For sure, though, if, if I believe Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, because Jesus thought Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. How did he know this? Because he wasn't there, right? Moses wasn't there in the beginning. He didn't have a book from Adam, right? That wasn't passed along. He didn't have a conversation with Noah, Abraham. How did he know this? Divine revelation, right? It's in the exact order that it should be in. So we have a sovereign work, an ordered work, and then then finally, just to note, and we'll finish with this, the creation account also describes a, a good work, a good work. So the final blank then to fill in there underneath that part. 
would be the word good. God designs, and we noted that. You note as you go all the way through, God saying, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then God finishing here with, uh, with man saying, and it was very good. So everything ordered, everything appropriate, everything in its place. And just, just for the record, also noting that creation, not only does it have the right order, but creation is designed to uniquely support human life. I mean, it supports all of the life, right? But you can't miss its unique design, that it's, it's good for humanity in particular. And that this is a specific type of world created by God. I gave you just, I couldn't resist giving you a few little tidbits here. Maybe you've heard these before. But just looking at the design and creation of God's world. You, you, again, you've probably heard this. But, but if, the, if the earth were just a few, to, you know, just a little bit closer to the sun or a little bit further away. If it's a little closer, it's burned up. If it's a little further away, it's frozen. If it's not tilted at exactly 23 degrees, then it becomes inhabitable, uninhabitable. If it's not exactly at that particular tilt. Uh, notice, uh, notice the next one. The atmosphere being made up of a precise combination of nitrogen and oxygen so that we can breathe. It's the exact mix of li- of, uh, the, the cre- that enables life, an exact mix that life depends on. And it does not happen on any other planet. It does not happen on any other planet. In fact, it is clear, scientists do agree with this, no other planet is a living planet. Oh, I, I know they talk about Mars and finding evidence of water and whatnot, but no other planet is, is rightly identified as a living planet, sustaining what we would call biological life in any form, in any form. This, this earth is unique in that. Notice this next one. Earth is in the exact position so that the average temperature is balanced between the freezing point of water and the normal body temperature of humans. Granted, there are extremes, right? You could have lived in Minnesota over the last week. But what is it today? It's nearly 50 degrees. Now, are there times when it gets really, really hot? Yes, it does. But again, if you go and you look at the averages of places where, that, where people live, right? The populated areas of our planet, you, you will see that, that existence happens in this range. It's fascinating. It happens in this range of temperature. We would not be able to survive for long above or below those two extremes. For for long, meaning six months, a year, whatever the case would be. Some people can, I guess, with special equipment at this point. But anyway, the, the earth is designed for this. And then that last one. If the earth didn't rotate every 24 hours, but instead rotated every 36 hours... Temperature at noon would be well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and at midnight would drop below freezing, even in the summer. So again, you know, you look, you look at all of, all of this, and you see what, what would be reflected in the created order, this, this evidence. God, God did this, and this is what the Genesis account gives us. God created this intentionally. You could use the phrase by hand. God created it by hand and God created it from scratch. By hand from scratch. You and I don't create from scratch. You've never baked anything from scratch. No one here ever has. And I love to bake. 
But you know what? You've never have. Unless you have personally created your own wheat out of nothing. I mean, I don't think you have, right? You, say, you, know, you think pastor created from scratch. That's the put the flour and the eggs. No, no. I mean, that's what we say, but no, that's not it. Some people think not being from scratch means I got a tube out of the freezer section. No, that's not what it means. None of us have ever done that. I mean, even if I get flour and eggs and sugar and chocolate and butter and, and I really would like a cookie right now. All right, if you put all that together, that's not from scratch because you didn't make the egg. You didn't make the chicken. You didn't make the chocolate. You didn't make the sugar. So God, this is what the created account is telling us. God created personally, by hand, and from scratch. So again, the Bible and the Bible... The Bible says that God and God alone is the one responsible for creation. These things are, these are mutually exclusive concepts with the, doc, with the doctrines of what would be evolution. They cannot coexist together. Hold on to this outline. We'll keep going next week, all right? We'll finish up. Then the rest of the biblical account, then we'll turn our attention uh, to, uh, to what evolution would have to say and how we can then respond appropriately to it. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you again for gathering us tonight, thankful for this Lord's Day. And Father, we uh, are grateful now for the week that lays out before us. We enter into it by faith, trusting you, believing in your good grace, uh, grateful for salvation, knowing that you are a God who empowers us, gives us wisdom. And so God, we, we trust our lives into your hands, and we pray, God, that you would use us as you see fit, and that we might bring you glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.